Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet. May peace be upon him. So continuing our ongoing exploration of the story of the children of Israel. We are, looks like some people are having trouble connecting. We are um, now actually getting into the narrative. And so, let me try to share. Okay, <clears throat> so so yesterday we spoke quite a bit about I have forty seven and, and oops wrong computer I have forty seven and forty eight and there uh, uh, the core point that I was making is that when Allah Taala is speaking to the Jews of Medina in particular, the children of Israel, those people who self-identify as the children of Israel in general. Uh, IS 47 is essentially, we are reading it to say that they've been given every luxury of the world without having to put in any toil. Whereas 48, uh, it will be the result of the toil that you put into this world. And so now getting into the events, we have basically half a dozen events that we go through. And the first one, what if? So once again, the point I made before about when you see what if, uh, literally the translation is and when, but that is signaling to you that you're about to read something from history. And, and what is the lesson given regarding a historical uh, passages that take a lesson from this moment in, in history or take a lesson from this moment that occurred before your time. What is So, and when we saved you from the people of the Pharaoh. So let's talk a little bit about, about the Pharaoh here. Uh, first, uh, an interesting point. And this is uh, an Egyptian teacher of mine who raised the point asking me if I had an answer and I did not. And so if any of you have an answer, it'd be, it'd be great. Um, that <clears throat> when we look in the writings and the preserved tablets, hieroglyphics and such of the Pharaoh, uh, it seems that we don't find Moses there. And, and so what is the source material for, for these events? This person who is said to be Ramses II or Ramses III, uh, uh, the source material for these events is Revelation. And uh, that question was asked me a while ago, so I don't know if, if any of you all have an answer to that, but, but this is a point to consider. In the same way that we mentioned that the Jews of Medina uh, we find them all over our historical sources, but it's hard to find them in Jewish sources themselves. Or the Nestorian monks, Bahira Waraha, who recognize the, the prophet, peace be upon him, as the prophet, uh, their uh, approach to Christianity was considered to be heresy, blasphemy, uh, according to the Council of Nicaea, according to what is essentially mainstream Christianity. And so, so that's a, a question. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts or reflections upon that. Second point to consider regarding the historical Pharaoh versus the metaphorical Pharaoh. Uh, the Pharaoh himself is often 
considered to be a, a symbol or a model of a tyrant. So if you want to see the strategies of how a tyrant behaves, one technique is to go through the Quran and see what it says about, about the Pharaoh. The easiest example of that, although we'll see some of that today, is if we go to Surah Al-Qasas, Surah 48, no, no, Surah 28, 28? No, Surah yeah, 28. So much of Surat Al-Qasas is, is about the Pharaoh and, and Prophet Musa, peace be upon Prophet Musa. And so look at, for example, Ayah 48. No, I'm sorry, Ayah 4. I don't know why I keep saying these extra random numbers. So, inna fir'auna ala fil arb. So indeed, indeed, Pharaoh exalted himself in the land. And he made his people into factions, oppressing a sector of them slaughtering their sons and keeping their women, their girls alive. And so what are some of the basic techniques of the Pharaoh? All of you are familiar with this, divide and conquer. Not only divide and conquer, keep the people fighting each other and in among those people, pick who you're going to be oppressing. And then we'll also make sense of what is the point of slaughtering the sons and, and, and keeping the daughters that we'll, we'll talk about uh, in, in our own passage, inshallah. But the point I'm making is that Pharaoh himself is, on the one hand, this historical figure about whom we were familiar through Revelation, more so than history, meaning we have, uh, we have the mummy of the person who is said to be Pharaoh, but it's hard to find any connection with Moses, peace be upon him, who's raised in the house. And then the second point is that the Pharaoh himself is looked at as a model, a textbook model of how does a tyrant behave. Who at the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, whom did the prophet say is the Pharaoh of my generation? You know? Abu Jahal, yeah, exactly, yeah. So Abu Jahal, uh, why would he, of all the possible choices, why would Abu Jahl be considered to be the pharaoh of the time of the prophet, peace be upon him? And what is especially interesting is that the revelations about pharaoh don't come along until Medina. Abu Jahl is, is primarily opposing the prophet in, in Mecca, although he, uh, I think he called him uh, pharaoh of my generation in um, at the, on his death at Badr. Any thoughts? Why would Abu Jahl be considered? So yeah, Iqbal is saying he rejected the signs, but so did, you know, so many other people. So did literally in that battle, 2,000 other people. Okay, persecution, all these people did. Most likely is that he is the most powerful of the Meccans, at least in terms of convincing other people to fight. And so, yes, his nickname was Abu Hakam, and then the Sahaba nicknamed him Abu Jahl. So the father of wisdom was then uh, uh, mocked as the father of ignorance. So the source material uh, for each and the different Abrahamic religions concerned whether religions from. Uh, that question, let's, let's uh, moment, let's come back to that, inshallah, because that's going to require me to use a little bit of brain power. But, uh, but so the point being, you know, mashallah, so, so the point being that Abu Jahl specifically 
is named by the prophet peace be upon him as as the um, uh, as the pharaoh of his time and and what was Abu Jahl's complaint? Why did he refuse to follow the prophet peace be upon him? So in some cases the complaint was over over the actual doctrine of oneness of God. Uh, some cases the complaint was over business uh, and some of the complaint was over pride, but what was Abu Jahl's specific accusation? Abu Jahl's accusation was we cannot let Banu Hashim take over the Quraysh. Abu Jahl had no complaint about the message. Abu Jahl had not only appreciated the Quran, as we know, he used to he used to sit outside the Prophet's house, peace be upon him, as the Prophet recited the Quran. And, and then there's the famous event where Abu Jahan and Abu Sufyan are both doing it at opposite sides and they run into each other um, back when Abu Sufyan was, was still opposing the Prophet, peace be upon him. So Abu Jahal had no issue with the message, but he was willing to squander his akhirah to make sure Banu Hashim, the specific clan within the, uh, the Quraysh that the Prophet belonged to, peace be upon him, to make sure that they did not become the dominant tribe, the dominant clan, the dominant family. And, and so, so that, I mean, the, the, the people who oppose the prophet, peace be upon them, I find a lot of their motivations to be very fascinating because they also give us insights about human nature and sin and such. That, you know, think of someone who, let's say they have a serious heart condition and the doctor is telling them, okay, you're going to ruin yourself if you're smoking. But the person smokes. They know they're going to die, but they smoke. Okay. Here we're talking about salvation. And he's recognizing uh, the, the awesomeness of the Quran. And he also uh, knows the prophet, peace be upon him, since childhood. And still he's saying no. Okay. Contrast that with, with the majority, overwhelming majority Sunni opinion about Abu Talib. Abu Talib, who does not embrace the prophet's message. In Shia tradition, he absolutely embraces the prophet mes prophet's message. Uh, but the majority Sunni opinion is that he does not. And, and why not? He's just unable to give up his, his family's traditions. And I'm saying in looking at the kuffar of, of, of Mecca, we can also have a lot of insights about ourselves and uh, uh, in terms of the choices we make uh, at the small level, not at the cost of salvation, inshallah. And then uh, what will be a metaphor of the children of Israel in the Quran? So one is the Pharaoh as a tyrant, the children of Israel in the Quran, uh, often it becomes a metaphor for how hypocrisy operates. This we will see. But let's touch on this a little bit more. We're gonna talk a little bit more about metaphors in just a moment. <clears throat> so, so we saved you from your forefathers. Notice the translation, or we saved you from the people of Pharaoh. Your, the translation here says your forefathers, but it's kum, we saved you, all of you from the people of Pharaoh who afflicted you with the worst torment. Slaughtering your sons and keeping your females alive. That was a great trial from your Lord. Yeah. So, so as we read this, we're going to have two lenses. One lens is to look at these from within the Quranic window itself. 
And then if I'm a member, if I consider myself to be a member of the children of Israel, I'm also going to be looking at this through the lens of, of what does it say in my book, in the Bible about this. And I asked Abdullah to, to do some research, Abdullah Mirza and Mashallah, he sent me really uh, some good information. And then I have also doing some other research for me too as well, inshallah. And so, so first the Quranic lens, if we, if we skip history for a second and look at Pharaoh as a model tyrant, what would be the strategy be here? for wiping out the sons and keeping the daughters. Meaning as a strategy of oppression. What do y'all think? So one is absolutely uh, uh, cutting off bloodlines, right? And so, so uh, the way bloodlines are playing out, that becomes a source of honor, strength, tribe and such. That's, that's cutting that out. Likewise, what Sadia is saying to, to um, uh, and, and Basir is to weaken and so to prevent rebellion, to pre prevent revolt, uh, revolt. Now, what else is taking place essentially is that by taking the women, you are continuing your own bloodline. See what we're saying? It's because the women then become, you know, for lack of a better term in this context, baby makers for your own people. Right. This is this is one of the, the rumors that are coming out about the Uyghurs, that that the women are being taken and being forced into marriage with with you know with Han Chinese uh, against their will. Literally the same behavior. And some people will even speak of this uh, at least at a metaphorical level of what's happened, what you know America's done with the African American communities in our society. You know, totally destroy the men and then make the women have to carry on the, the family and all those things. Now, now to Musab, Musab's point, if we look at it through the biblical lens, okay, so not the Quranic lens. The Quranic lens doesn't, I don't know of any narration where it actually says why he's doing this. In the Quranic lens, uh, this is Musab's point, that the Pharaoh's advisors told him that a male is going to be coming up and rising against you. And so what does he do? He has all the male infants slaughtered. And then uh, the next year of the babies that are coming in, he decides to leave them. And the year after that, he slaughters them again. Not realizing that while all this is going on, the little baby Musa, peace be upon him, his mother is running away. And then she receives insights from Allah. That part, uh, some of this is in the Quran. She receives insights from Allah to okay, set him in this little boat, in this little uh, basket in this river and you will be reunited with him. And then this gets found uh, in the house of the Pharaoh and then they take him in and then they start nursing him or they start taking care of him. And it just so happens Musa's mother um, has a job working there and then she takes, she takes Musa, peace be upon him, and is secretly taking care of him. Oh, uh, Harun was born in the free year. Okay, mashallah, yeah. Now keep in mind, <clears throat> your desire is going to be to read this through the lens of history. Okay. And I'm saying, look at that as secondary. Okay. Because if you read this through the lens of history, you're gonna miss, miss the, lens of the, the, the lessons of the text itself. Okay. So, uh, this was a great trial from your Lord. Okay. Now here's something else that's interesting. So the word that's being used is, is uh, that this is a trial. 
if we jump forward into the same surah, around ayah 124, 125. Let's see, let's just make this to 130. Where Allah Ta'ala is speaking about Ibrahim, peace be upon him, and as fate would have it, uh, internet is going down. Turn off internet for a second. Turn it back on. So can you all still see me? Nod or something, okay. All right. There is internet. I'm missing the Surah number. This is still, oh, mashallah. So I thought it was internet. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. So the ayah here is somewhere with Ithiptila Ibrahim. Yeah, 123. 123? Oh, here it is. 124, mashallah. Okay. And when Ibrahim, peace be upon him, was tried by his Lord, okay, with commands. So this is a small, a small uh, but interesting point. The children of Israel were put into slavery by a tyrant and their sons were slaughtered. Their babies were slaughtered. Okay. And that what the term there is bala. Ibtila. What is ibtila versus bala? Anyone? One of the ways to, uh, uh, Lake, you look like you're speaking, but I don't know if you're speaking to us. Or not. To try. Say it again. To try someone or like a reflexive. Okay, so, so ibtila can be read as intense struggle. So bala is struggle, ibtila, one of the ways to read that is intense struggle. So think about what we're saying if we go with that reading. That slavery and slaughtering of your babies, as horrendous of a trial as that is, what Ibrahim al-Islam was given was much worse, was much more difficult. How can that be? Try to comprehend that. Anyone want to try to make sense of this? And yeah, I know that we're about... <clears throat> nearly a week in the in the in Ramadan. So Musab is saying he had to sacrifice his son, but that's what the children of Israel also experienced. And in their case, it wasn't a choice. Or is that one of the insights right there? He had to do it himself. And uh, a son that was uh, waited for for almost 90 years, if you say biblical sources or historical mm -hmm. sources. Mm -hmm. So So one possibility could be not just simple fact that he had to slaughter his son, he had to do it, and he waited all of these years, literally just to have a son, right? The name Ismail is God has listened, listened to this prayer that he's been making for a son. What else? Uh, I think uh, Sami's point is also very important that this is relative pain. I, I'm cautioned to go so far as to say that the children of Israel may have been desensitized to the pain, uh, but that it probably is included in this. Uh, uh, but the obligation to, even as a child, to, to turn to Allah, and then the obligation to call people to Allah, uh, we're saying was a bigger test for him. But 
I think it's a fascinating point. Nevertheless, uh, I don't think any of us would wish uh, to be put into slavery and especially to, to go through this process of, of a tyrant slaughtering your, your, your sons. Uh, Musab, he had to abandon his wife and child. Yeah, I'd say that that'd be part of it too. Uh, still, it seems to me, it doesn't seem that, you know, what the children of Israel were put through is worse. But if you, if you broaden the lens, is that the, Hazrat Ibrahim went through from the loneliness, he took care of like, starting from his father, he left his father, his region, his tribe, then all the struggle, continuous struggle in his life. Sure. And I would still suggest that doesn't, I mean, so Sami's point is probably the most correct in terms of relative pain. Uh, and I'm still suggesting that uh, we're talking about slavery and then your children are getting slaughtered. So in any case, uh, a point to consider. So this was a great trial from, from your Rabb. And then what's the next event? Well, if farakna bikumul bahra. So, and we split for you the sea. So in the language of the Quran elsewhere, how does the sea split? It's split into two mountains of water, as opposed to low tide. And we're getting a hint of what we're going to be seeing a lot of, which is miraculous event after miraculous event after miraculous event. Meaning, so one of the favors that Allah Ta'ala gave them is that he had them freed from, from Pharaoh. Another one is to actually be shown, as is the rest of this ayah, we saved you and we drowned the people of Pharaoh while you were watching. Why is this last point important? So it's one point uh, that their oppressor has been, has been uh, destroyed. But why is it an important point that they're seeing it happen? What do you all think? I think closure is a good point, especially into modern, uh, modern thinking. The threat <clears throat> is over now, as well as uh, what Sami's saying. They witnessed the miracle. They got their revenge. And, and so, man, so, so to help them, they're witness. Another one, our, is a, yeah. who's the top dog, so to speak, Nazubillah. But, you know, uh, Pharaoh is claiming, Ana Kumala. And uh, here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, uh, look, this is the claimant to my position. Look what I'm doing to him. Mm -hmm. yeah. Again, a reaffirmation that you know, there's, uh, the, I know what's in your hearts, but I'm giving you this proof again to you so that you may desist. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is also a very important point, that they are witnessing the, the acts of the true Lord. Yeah. And then also think about this for yourself uh, in terms of, of, and this is related to, to Sadia's point, uh, uh, when we speak of different types of yaqeen, right? We have haqq al-yaqeen, ayn al-yaqeen. Uh, anyone want to explain the difference between these two? Ilm al-yaqeen, these three. So ilm al-yaqeen, is when through knowledge you have certainty. And then Ayn al is you've seen it with your own eyes. And Haqq al is this is truth. You recognize this as truth and thus you have certainty. And so they are seeing with their own eyes what is taking place. 
right? When the prophet, peace be upon him, first received revelations, what was going on in his mind about his experience? What was he thinking, according to some of our understanding? Yeah, one reading is that he thought he lost his mind. He thought he was possessed. He thought he lost his mind. Okay. And what's interesting, so, so it seems like there's two schools. So we're talking right now about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. There's two schools of thinking. The one that's more majority in American teaching of Islam is that he did not know he was going to be a prophet, peace be upon him. He's having these experiences, and very often all these experiences are taking place around him. And it's going through life, you know, like the open heart surgery or the cloud following along, so forth and so on. And then he receives his revelations, and then he uh, uh, he thinks, uh, and then uh, he, he thinks he's lost his mind when he has his first visit. The other school, uh, which we find elsewhere, is is that he already knew his whole life he was a prophet, and the experience of revelation was such a horrendous experience on his being that physically, you know, it's like he was quaking. He physically could not take it. And so then the events are taking place the same, according to the same stories, the same, uh, the two different stories, the same events. He's running home. He's saying to Khadija, cover me, cover me and such. Uh, but if we go with the school of thinking that he thought he was possessed, then we look at these ayahs where he keeps being told, you are not a madman. You are not a poet. You're coming with a very noble message. It seems as though that message stops after the night journey. That after he experiences the night journey, now he's seen everything. Whether we call it with your own eyes or not, it's a different point, but now he's seen it all. So it doesn't even matter what people have to say. He experienced it. And so here that uh, we would like to think that if I witness a miracle, that is going to strengthen my faith. But what we're going to see with the children of Israel is that miracles don't necessarily work that way, right? We would like to think that, all right, if you, if you experience something that there's no explanation for, this is going to increase your faith. But we've already seen with, with the Quraysh that it doesn't work that way, right? The Quraysh were shown, uh, can someone nod? I think I froze again. Not, okay, good, good. It's, Everyone's, okay, good. So, so the Quraysh has shown the splitting of the moon. Good. And then what do they say? No, we, you, you bewitched us. That didn't really happen. Good. And, and so we would like to think that if a miracle happens, suddenly that's going to be the key for what will make us transform. But we're going to see the children of Israel, miracles don't work that way. Miracles work very much like currency does. That if, you know, if Allah Ta'ala gives me a huge amount of wealth. What is natural to my design as a person, I should be grateful, but there's gonna be a part of me that's gonna want more. So if I'm given a mountain of gold, I should be grateful for it, but part of me is gonna want a second mountain of gold. And, and so we especially see this point toward the end of this surah, it's, I want to say it's around I-212 of Al-Baqarah, same surah. Okay, and let's see. 
Okay. So this is a sneak preview to what would essentially be course number seven. Uh, <clears throat> by the time, or it's just probably like course number five. Uh, by the time we get to this part of Surat al-Baqarah, we will have completed Islam. So by the time we get to Ayah 208-ish, uh, all the core foundation of Islam will be completed. Okay, And then the latter part of the surah is going to be answers to all kinds of questions, sort of like filling in some blanks. And so what does it say here? Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, so all you who believe, all you who claim to believe, udhulu fisilmi kafa. So enter into Islam completely. Okay. Do not follow the footsteps of shaitan. He is your, he is your enemy. If you split, if you deviated, if you fell after clear proofs come to you, Allah's almighty wise. And then the question becomes, what is it going to take for you to enter Islam completely? Are you waiting for Allah himself to appear in, in clouds with angels? Okay. And in simple language, what is it saying? What is it going to take you to completely surrender to Allah? Are you waiting for an ultimate miracle to happen? Okay. Uh, at that point, it's going to be too late. And then it says, ask the children of Israel how many we gave them. Okay. And so, so by that point, it's saying, you've already gone through this much of, of, of Al-Baqarah. You've been given everything. What is it going to take now? Okay. So, <clears throat> so here, when we're going through all these miracles, they're seeing these things happening with their own eyes. We would like to think that this will open their hearts to faith. But what would we say? That their first tragic flaw is lack of gratitude. Even coming from slavery to luxury, we would like to think that, all right, your heart's going to open. But I'm suggesting to you, this was not a sign of their wickedness. This is a sign of their normal humanity. That this is, it's, uh, it's very easy to forget the poverty and struggle or just to intellectually remember it and then try to really, really cash in on luxury and buy anything and everything while you can. Good. Okay. <clears throat> So let's see if we have time for, for one more. Actually, no, let's stop right there because then we get into Musa al-Islam and, and the Torah. So uh, let's open the floor, inshallah, for, for questions. We're going to be visiting this question about, about miracles uh, at another point soon, inshallah, to make more sense of them. Uh, Musa is saying, how did Bani Israel come to become slaves of Egyptians in the first place? Yes, Yusuf al-Islam was a ruler. Uh, that, uh, that history is way beyond me. Uh, so if you can find out for us, uh, that would be really, really good. Uh, other questions? Oh, let me find Moman's super question. Uh, actually, Mom, oh, there it is. Okay, so the source material, hold on, let me make this big. I might have to even, let's stop the share for a second. So the source material for each of the different Abrahamic religions consider, uh, confirms whichever religion it's from. Okay, so far I'm with you. Okay. At least in the way each of the religious uh, religions interprets their own source material. So far, yes, I'm with you. Okay. That seems like it would make sense, but then any rational belief would seem to require a pre-existing agreement that the specific source material being used is trustworthy. I still agree with you so far. From a rational perspective, how can people objectively uh, differentiate between the source materials and therefore religions? This is a very good question. This is the field of what we call historical critical research. And, and so, so 
part of the process is to use whatever tools we have as historians, as archaeologists, to check your sources. Okay. So that would involve everything. So one is simply the, uh, you know, how reliable is your text, your sacred text as source material, or has it been changed through throughout time? Uh, and, and then the events that are, you're saying have happened, whether miraculous or not, what can we confirm um, from that? So, so in terms of historians of religion, you're going to find a whole, whole spectrum, as we would imagine. Those people who are ultra skeptics and then those who are ultra apologists. And so even in the study of Islam, uh, you know, the academic study of Islam, there are people like one, uh, 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 Dr. Mahan has, uh, uh, Patricia Krona, she passed away, right? Not too long ago? Yeah, she passed away. Yeah. So there's a few people like Patricia Krona, Michael Cook, uh, who, who are trying to be ultra, ultra uh, skeptical of the sources. And, and, and they give potent, uh, all kinds of uh, hypothetical theories of, okay, what is the real source of Islam? Where is it taking place? You know, is Mecca even reliable? And so they go so far as to say, no, it's not. Uh, and so uh, the same thing has sort of crippled the faith of a lot of uh, Christians. Uh, the most prominent of them, the most outspoken of them is this guy at North Carolina, Bart Ehrman. You know who uh, who Dr. Ghazi is very very familiar with. Um, you know who who does believe wholeheartedly that Jesus was a real person, but tears apart the Bible as any sort of authentic text. The hard part to doing that in terms of Judaism is is uh, is that the field itself is very hard to to get into. Um, um, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, there's politics in every field of religion, uh, but. Uh, it seems like the politics of the studies of historical critics, study, critical studies of Judaism, are a little bit harder to 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 address. But well, the point is, yeah, I heard a voice. Yeah, it was me. I yeah. I just want to say a word on this question when you're done. Oh, please, yeah. Um, and so 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 the point is that I think one of the strong things that the academic study of Islam can do is to go through and and critique uh, uh, everything in our history. Right. There's a lot of a lot of aspects that the academic study of Islam can can sort of, you know, like be problematic. But I think one of the very strong points is to go through and critique. Right. Uh, the evolution of the study of Hadith um, is an interesting example of this, because if we go into the late 1800s, all the way through the late 1900s, uh, it is that uh, the view is that the Quran is 100 percent preserved and the Hadith are all fake. And then in the 1990s, then the view on Hadith started evolving uh, with pushback from other people. And these are mostly non-Muslims themselves saying that it seems more and more like what Muslims are saying, and what Sunni Muslims are saying about Hadith seems to be more accurate. Um, and then they give all kinds of interesting arguments related to uh, manuscript availability or just the, you know, what are, what a view seems to be more reasonable. Uh, but using our sources, they're saying the Quran has been changed. And this is when we, you know, we spoke in the last course about the Ahruf. Uh, that would be uh, part of that discussion. Um, and, and so that is going to have a devastating uh, impact on the faith of a whole lot of Muslims. Because what is the importance of, of removing all these cobwebs? It's that the faith of, of many of us in our community rests on a house of cards. 
One is the Quran is unaltered. Uh, another is, you know, the Quran has predicted all these things that scientists have not discovered until recently. Uh, and then I forgot what some other ones were, were, but those are the big ones. If that's the foundation of your faith, you have very weak faith. And in, in fact, you know, in the short period of time, you know, that summer when I was at Azhar, uh, I remember I was entering the Masjid of Azhar for some random prayer. And then this guy comes up to me and he gives me a da'wah book. Um, I don't know why he thought I was non-Muslim. You know, I'm brown. My name is Omar and I'm going to pray. But anyway, that's beside the point. And it was, you know, science in the Quran. It's like, Dude, seriously here? But anyway, um, so, so, uh, so the point is that uh, this is a, a wide open field to to um, uh, explore. Uh, Dr. Mahan, take it away. Yeah, you know, this question that Moment asked, it's the exact question that Imam Maturidi begins his Kitab al-Tawheed with. That, you know, if, if a tradition refers back to itself for uh, affirming itself, its circular reasoning. And so he says, well, in that case, the only thing that one religion has against another or has over another is perhaps more uh, in numbers, more people following or less people following. But in terms of philosophical grounding, they're all the same. And so he says, this is the beginning, one of the beginning early treatises on rational theology, that in order to ground itself, then religion must um, find the support of natural philosophy, akal. Um, so uh, that just question reminded me of, you know, the beginnings of theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mashallah. Wonderful. Mashallah. Yeah. And in fact, you, you reminded me that in terms of theology and history, uh, one of the places where these cobwebs are going to be hit is when history gets rewritten post prophet um, to fit theology. You know, whether we're talking about the martyrdom of Imam Hussein and, and Yazid and such, or, or other events. So, yeah, yeah, very, very uh, wonderful point. Um, and then Mossad is saying, why do historians always tend to rip apart monotheistic history as opposed to polytheistic history? I think that really depends upon the historian themselves. So I had many classmates who, their interest, I mean, so all my classmates had some sort of ideological, theological bent, including myself. This is in the academic study of things. And although it'd be true in Madrasa as well. But, um, you know, so I had, there are some people in my class who were evangelicals. That was their purpose. There was a classmate that I had who, who had lived, a white guy who lived in, in Lebanon and, and his family was running a church there. Their kids were all being groomed to be evangelicals and he's getting a PhD in Islamic studies. There's another person who came in sort of as an evangelical, but then he lost all of his faith. And uh, I mean, all of his faith. So it didn't, it's not that he became Muslim. Um, it's just, he, he left Christianity. Then there was, um, then there were the Muslims and such who, you know, wanted to uh, defend uh, Islam in whatever way. Um, but there are also those students who didn't really care from a religious perspective, but their interest was always in sectarian or deviant stories. And so that's what interested them. And so, so as a historian, you're looking for what interests you. And sometimes you might be looking for what can also get you a job. And that would often mean studying something that other people have not studied. Uh, so, uh, so I'm cautious to say historians always tend to rip apart monotheistic history. I think um, many are arguing that the, 
monotheistic sources are not as strong. Uh, Ulfat is saying, oh, I think you're probably talking about the Masjid al-Azhar that's a sightseeing destination. Yeah, they probably just assume, okay, this guy's Desi, he doesn't know anything about Islam, which is probably what the Desis were all thinking about the Arabs. Okay, Abdul Mirza, uh, academic historical criticisms of religious uh, religion sounds different than the philosophical, psychological, theological projects. They have different aims to begin with, not just that they have different conclusions, but also sought different kinds of conclusions in the first place. For instance, how a book impacts your life or has impacted other people is potentially separate from the question of how the book was composed. Uh, both of your questions, uh, Moment and Sammy, uh, remind me of these page-long questions that I would ask Dr. Estrar. Uh, and it literally, in, in our, our uh, back when me and your father were doing our seven-day training, uh, I'd write these page-long questions. So, so give me a second. Uh, okay, so, so what you're saying is, is that the historical criticism is going to be different than a philosophical criticism. Yes, absolutely. And so I think you're sort of responding to your dad's point um, that within the lens of theology and philosophy, this is, uh, this is how Maturidi is trying to uh, address it. Yes. And, and also then we'd say from a historian standpoint, we'd be addressing these questions in a different way. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I don't know if there was a question in there though. Any other questions about anything else? Uh, so, uh, Sami's question to the question you asked about the beginning of the class about Musa being absent from Egyptian history. Musa salam, successfully led a small enslaved group out of Egypt right under the noses of the pharaohs, split the Red Sea, a feature not exactly commonplace in the time. <laughs> right. All three of you are also Moshua. And throw in the Qureshi brothers too. And then God used the Red Sea to crush the Pharaoh's army. Is that something the Egyptians would memorialize? Okay, fair point. <laughs> in their narrative, they're probably not going to, you know, share defeat. Okay. Any other points, questions about anything at all? Uh, you you were uh, mentioning Balaun versus Ibtala, right? Yes, yes. So uh, one is actually one is noun. And Allah SWT is saying this is a great, uh, this is one of the great uh, trial. Yeah. And from Ibrahim alayhi uh, uh, if we do say that even if Ibtila is, is of a higher superlative type yeah. of uh, trial, uh, we can think about how Hazrat Ibrahim alayhi he, he was told to now uh, to sacrifice his child, he would need like willingly, whereas the Bani Israel are just, you know, that's the default position. Mm -hmm. And he's also told to stand up against the tyrant where Bani Israel are not asked to do so, and Hal Musa is do so. And when he did that for them, they said, you know, we are not better off with you or without you. So mm -hmm. what is the benefit? Mm -hmm. So maybe we can think about that. Yeah, well, I mean, so a part that, uh, so thank you for that, a part that I didn't emphasize, which is sort of akin to what you're especially saying here, what are the other, uh, the comments some of the other people made. I'm also raising the question of physical struggle contrasted with responsibility. So we're also taught that nobody suffered more than the, the prophets, peace be upon them, right? That nobody suffered more than Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And if we look at it from a dunya perspective, then what do we see? Uh, five of his children he buried in his lifetime. I cannot imagine burying one, he buried five. 
And then, so from a dunya perspective, we have that. And then on top of that, from a dunya perspective, his own family, his extended family, are the people who are fighting against him. We're literally going to war against him, trying to kill him and his people, and, and dying. Okay. Uh, if we look at it from the perspective, including their responsibility, the Prophet, peace be upon him, had the responsibility of giving this message to everybody of the Arabian Peninsula. And, and so if he fails in one person there, okay, then he's failing. Because what does he say on his hajj, is his chutbah of, of hajj at the end? Okay, have I given you this message? Yeah, Allah, yeah, please bear witness. Yeah, Allah, bear witness. Yeah, Allah, bear witness. Right? And, and so, so what I am also suggesting is that if we look from the bigger picture perspective, then our measurement of, of, of success and failure changes, as well as our measurement of struggle and, 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 and ease. So think about it this way. Uh, so about half of us here, mashallah, probably about a third of us here have children. And then inshallah, many, many more will have children. So imagine if you had the choice uh, for your child to die early as Muslim or to live longer and outlive you, so you never witness their death, but they die as a non-Muslim, which would you prefer as the parent? Okay. And so from a belief perspective, uh, I think most people in this particular class would say, then if that was the choice, I would choose for my child to die early and I'd have to live with the pain. Yeah, that's exactly the point I'm making. And so, so likewise, if we even look at the 30 years after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him, uh, it looks like a big mess. Uh, Abu Bakr dies within, I mean, it's Abu Bakr uh, is dealing with the first civil war, like the Ridda Wars, and then he dies. Omar is murdered. Uthman is facing the entire collapse of the entire community. He is murdered. Ali is murdered. And from a general dunyawi measurement, it looks like a, a big, a big fail. Okay. Even though first civil war, they get reunited. Second civil war, they get reunited, which, which no community could, could survive that. So even from a dunya perspective, it's if we made the lens a bit wider, it's success. Uh, but if you look from the wider picture, including the Day of Judgment, Abu Bakr, paradise. Omar, paradise. Uthman, paradise. Ali, paradise. Inshallah. Um, so yeah, that, that was also uh, the, the second half of the discussion that I should have emphasized. The first half being, you know, how do you compare slavery uh, with that? But, um, you know, the point that was made, I think Sami made it, that, um, uh, that relatively... Yeah, it may be that the torment that a prophet feels when uh, one of their uh, people of their ummah doesn't follow uh, might be far greater than being put into torture. Okay. Uh, uh, a way Abdul Nasser Jangada, the, um, down in Dallas, the way he describes the way for us, a way for us to imagine the prophet, peace be upon him, towards us, is imagine him pacing back and forth in worry over us. And that is a way to, to imagine how the Prophet is for us, peace be upon him. That is very much related to an ayah at the very end of Surah Al-Baqarah, or Surah Al-Tawbah. Surah Al-Tawbah, the last ayah is essentially about our reliance upon Allah, but the ayah before that, which is like ayah 128, which uh, is one of my favorite ayahs of the Quran, um, is basically saying that Allah Ta'ala raised a Prophet from among you, and it's very heavy on him when you're suffering. It's sort of like saying he's the ultimate empath. The ultimate, uh, he has the ultimate experience of empathy. Okay, uh, let's see. Sami, also the ancient ancient Egypt is orders of magnitudes older 
than Rome, Christianity, Islam wouldn't only be conceivable, but actually likely that all the records of a relatively small, incredibly successful slave revolt had just been lost, destroyed. Yeah, I think that's also reasonable too. You know. Uh, um, in fact, I think I'm going to take uh, Sandy's quote and send it to my teacher, see what he has to say. Why would they memorialize this? Any other questions? Sorry that I keep calling you Sammy. Sami. Okay. Uh, Any please. Yes, Omar. Uh, you mentioned that um, if your basic understanding of religion is that the Quran is not altered, you know, uh, you know, the, all the sciences are were in the Quran fifteen hundred years ago, and basically this is a very weak religion. And I'm just thinking weak faith. Yeah. Weak faith. Um, the way religion is taught back home, like especially Amman and Palestine and stuff like that, it relies very heavily on that concept that the Quran is not altered, you know, this stuff is being mentioned in the Quran a really long time ago and stuff like that. So I don't know, I'm just wondering like how that how that actually like plays a role with, you know, all these people that rely on this as how they believe that the religion actually is. So, so really, really important question, and this is consistent here. The third thing that you, that I remember while you while you were mentioning this, uh, Omar al-Hadra, is is Michael Hart's book that the Prophet peace be upon him is the most influential person in history. Um, that is often quoted. Even uh, a physician was invited to come give a talk about medicine or something, and then he started going on and on about the Prophet peace be upon him. You know, being named number one by Michael Hart, uh, most influential man in the world. I remember that book came out in the late 70s. We all went insane with excitement. Look, a white guy has legitimized us. But anyway, and there were a couple of moments uh, later like that, like, you know, some guy came out with the number 19. Anyway, anyway. So, so let's imagine for the sake of argument or just for this, uh, a thought experiment that uh, Islam is just completely invented by a person. Okay. So it's not wahi, it's not divine revelation that is invented by a person. Okay. Then from a secular perspective, what should it be giving me? At the very least, it should be giving me a, a, a system through which to navigate life, right? That's why religion works. A lot of times when people are converting out of religion, uh, either from one into Islam or even from out of uh, Islam out uh, into something else, uh, they're basically saying it didn't work for me. The reasons may or may not be legit, uh, legitimate, but they're saying it didn't work. And so Dean should be providing you not purely with, not only with preparation for, for your afterlife, but it should be providing you a way to navigate everything that you deal with in life, especially struggle, but also the highs too. And if all, if the essence of your faith is the Quran is preserved, then what does that give you? It gives you nothing. Or, you know, the Quran has preached science. It just gives you this false sense of superiority. You know, that when you get tested in life, it crumbles. It gives you nothing, so then you rely on something else. And, and so, so think back to when we were discussing Ayah 23 of Al-Baqarah in the, in the previous course, where if you have doubt, then you have to do X, Y, Z. And first we spoke about doubt as being like a beautiful mansion where you have a leak somewhere. And if you don't do something about the leak, it's going to seep through and destroy everything. But how do you address the doubt? You have to find a, uh, you have to either write or produce a, a passage, you know, that can compete with the Quran or with al-Baqarah. You have to bring witnesses, which means what? You have to know the Quran itself. You have to know its content. So 
it's fine if my faith in Islam begins with something like that, like okay, the unaltered, um, the unaltered aspect of the Quran. I believe the Quran is unaltered, right? Um, but I'm also including variant readings as part of its unalteredness. And it's fine to start from the point of science, you know, these revelations that can be interpreted uh, from a scientific lens. But I have to reach a point where I'm growing past that, where I don't need that for my faith. Uh, and so where do I want my iman to be on? La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And then not just as a statement, but then that put into practice. And so, so what do we see happening in so much of the Muslim world that people are turning away from deen? And uh, I think part of it is just overall despondency in life. And part of it is that, okay, the deen that they're being given is completely irrelevant to what they need. Omar uh, al-Khadra, tell me uh, what you think. And meanwhile. I think that's a good point. Thank you. I feel like there's, there, there's a, a flaw in the way it is taught back home that helps a person transform or get to that point that exits from, you know, the understanding of, you know, the Quran is unaltered. It, it's, you know, very early science that before or whatever to the, to the point that my relationship with the Quran or whatever Islam is, rather than these simple facts that, you know, you crumble upon real quickly. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Musab, Sumerians and the Phoenicians were around the same time. Uh, that is beyond my knowledge. I want to say yes, uh, but you're our class historian, so you have to find out for us, inshallah. Uh, is religion, uh, am I saying that religion is a foundation of hope during daily struggle? Absolutely. That my relationship with Allah in particular is a foundation of my hope and my fear. That is the level I want to aspire to. Uh, is the goal to feel close to Allah like an emotional, spiritual emotion of fulfillment? Or do we have to assume that that comes with obedience, even if we don't necessarily feel different? Assuming we're trying to maintain sincerity and intention, it seems dangerous to just follow emotions, such as when you talk about the people who leave faith. But if we are using uh, 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 reason and religion to guide things, it would seem kind of pointless and potentially negative in to maintain a stoic disposition just for the sake of it. So where is the place of emotion and faith? Uh, your answer to Musab's question right above uh, kind of answered mine. Okay, well, I don't have to answer it then. No, so, so what I would add essentially to what you're saying is that emotions can be misleading, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, and this is especially an issue in the phase we're about to enter in Ramadan. This is literally the point, and this has literally started happening with me, I think, a student yesterday or today, I don't even remember anymore. Um, students think, I feel like I'm not getting anything of Ramadan. And, and so our spirituality is not founded upon exhilaration or intoxication. Ours is clarity, seeing reality for what it is. And so during this period of Ramadan, part of the fun is that this is where you're going to see people really lose their minds in anger because the, that which is within you is going to start coming to the fore um, just from the exhaustion of, of fasting. But also what's going to be taking place is you're going to be thinking very, very clearly. But that is something so subtle you don't notice it. Okay? You notice exhilaration. You notice intoxication. Okay? But here, clarity you may not notice. And I think I mentioned that my undergrads, uh, there are times where they actually ask me before they ask me any questions, are you fasting? because uh, I already have a reputation on campus for being completely, even more unfiltered when I'm fasting, like saying what they absolutely don't want to hear. 
you know, I'm having the struggle with my family. Well, maybe the problem's you, you know, that type of thing. So, so yeah, so emotions can uh, help, but they can also be completely mis misleading. Uh, but a lot of religious services do rely upon emotion and exhilaration. Any other last questions? Uh, just going back to your yeah. comment about uh, uh, if people uh, uh, kind of uh, getting onto the miracles in Quran. Uh, what what is your opinion? Um, some of our elders have kind of suggested that. Uh, to present to the intellectuals of the West the the things that are in Islam that can be uh, that that are sort of things that could be seen as better or superior um, and uh, to try to convince them about Islam uh, in through that aspect uh, from what I'm understanding you, it can be problematic for layperson, but what do you think about for intellectuals? Well, um, uh, I'd also be curious what uh, Adnan and Dr. Mahan also have to say about this, but my short answer would be wider to say that with each person, um, in theory, you're, you're going to use whatever vocabulary you believe to be in their language. Uh, uh, in the same way that the Quraysh had the Quran in front of them and the prophet in front of them, peace be upon him. Um, miracles didn't do anything for them. And, and so uh, miracles can work for some people and they may not work for someone else. And so intellectuals might be people of, who, who are good with complex ideas, but when it comes to day-to-day -day things, they might be complete imbeciles. And, and so we look for whatever language would be best for whomever it is we're speaking to. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of times we often think that if people are more educated, they're more enlightened. And my experience has been the opposite of that, uh, both uh, as a student as a, and as a, a teacher. Um, but Dr. Mahan, Don, what are your thoughts? Okay, uh, we'll take his, his thumbs up to say agreed. So. Anything else? Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, you can. Oh, my computer is working. Well, uh, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, being in philosophy, you're constantly up against uh, reason and rational argumentation. And what I've learned from the Quran is that Quran doesn't really give you an argument. It gives you a method. And the method is the, the, the Sufi method. Uh, if you really want to discover God, look deep within your heart clear your mind, clear your conduct, and find me within. And if you're sincere, your struggle is sincere, then something within you will crack, which is the meaning of aflaha. They have cracked those layers, say those layers of you know, hypocrisy and rancor and greed. And finally, uh, a sun, sun begins to shine from within. That's the Quranic method. It doesn't really give you an argument. So you're, you can, like you said, it's okay to begin with science and Quran and you know, all these other rational arguments, but eventually you want to break through, through the stuff of the mind and the stuff of, the, stuff of reason and get to the heart, uh, which is the, emotion, the emotional side of faith and find God deep within your own soul, within your heart. 
and that's where the emotional element comes in. Something within you will say, "La ilaha illallah, annahu al-haq." I think. Uh, Adnan, over there, wouldn't the same guys uh, say, I, I, "God speaks to me"? Uh, you know, the evangelicals or so forth. God speaks to me. I know this is the truth. Uh, so how would your argument work over there? I will say if God really truth uh, speaks to you, then, you know, that's between you and God. I cannot vouch for your uh, claim. Uh, but my, you know, the, your personal claim is your personal claim. Uh, it does not have authority for other people. Uh, except if it's, you know, a prophet's uh, claim, then a prophet would have, you know, claims authority. But if somebody says, uh, you know, God spoke to me and told me X, Y, Z, that's between you and your God. I am not responsible for your interpretation of your own experiences and what your, you know, what you think your heart is. We'll take, we'll take this off there, but uh, that sort of uh, knocks the foundations of, of the Dawa out. Well, uh, we're going to validate them. What do you uh, mean? Go ahead, uh, go ahead, Omar. Uh, I was going to jump in and say one of the key points of, of Adnan's uh, uh, original remark was that if they're searching, right? Right. If a person is not searching, then everything becomes irrelevant, right? right? So even in the passage, if you have doubt, if you're truthful, if doubt is your issue right. and you're looking to resolve the doubt, then you go through this. If, if you know, the evangelical says, I found God, I don't need anything else, then they're not searching. So when I teach the Quran, uh, even before I, I go through these preliminary discussions that there are certain requisites you need to fulfill even before you open the first page of the Quran. One of them is you, you have to approach the Quran with sincerity and with utmost humility. Without humility, you will get nothing out of it. In fact, it might lead you the other way. So if person is not seeking truth and seeking God with humility and in sincerity, then you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, so uh, that's, those are, that's my two cents. In any case, uh, uh, I hope you all don't mind. I have to end it here uh, um, and run to, to the, the next thing. So uh, we'll continue, inshallah, tomorrow. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfirka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfirka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfirka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah tell the word you all, inshallah. Wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillah.